The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Father, we come from many different places, experiencing many different things right now as we now sit here under your word, and we hear at the start here the psalmist who speaks to you and asks you to hide his sorrows in your garment, to cover him, to shelter him. And then expresses that in you, in God, in the Lord, in God will he trust. What can man do to him? Well, of course, man can do many things to him, and man can and does do many things to us. But you have won for us the truth of this psalm, as we'll see today. You have won it for us. And we, along with Him, can be a people who look to You to hide our sorrows, to take care of our enemies, to be our trustworthy shelter. I pray for the men and women and teenagers and kids here, Your people, particularly for those who come from sorrow this week, Pray that they would sense from You a unique nearness. A gathering up of their tears that not one would fall, but everyone would be kept and recorded. Language that speaks of an intimate awareness of our hurt. They would sense that from You and that they would sense that Your people those uniquely hurting and those who are about to hurt next week but don't know it yet. That Your people hear that we would know You to be near and to be a good, gracious shelter, one in whom we can trust. Do that work among us today, Lord. Use the passage that triggered this psalm and and use the verses that follow it in 1 Samuel. And make us a people who see You even when You're not visible. Who know You are there even when it seems like we are just wandering alone in the wilderness. But who know You are there. And who know You are up to something. And who trust You. Make us a people like that, Lord. Who believe in Your providential control of all of life and Your determined good towards us. Your holy set-apart ones. And Father, I pray that for those here in the room who do not know You, and those who will hear this who don't know You, that You would create in them deep longing and thirst. A keen awareness, not only of their own guilt before You, but of their abandonment in the world without You. And a crystal clear comprehension of this one inescapable fact that You are the only hope of humanity. Make that crystal clear, Lord. Draw people to save them. Draw people into a shelter, a refuge in the wilderness. Make that clear and compelling 
your Spirit's power, not by my feeble words, but by your Spirit's power. That's what we trust in. May your Spirit take these words that are written down and then my words that attempt to explain and elaborate on them, and may He take those words and Himself, by His power, speak. Commission Him to do that, Father, I pray. That Christ would be lifted up, that people would be drawn to Him for Your great glory and for the growth and for the good of Your church, Your people. Cast all our hope on Him. He is good. We pray in His name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of 1 Samuel chapter 21. We looked at the first nine verses of this chapter last week, verses 1 through 9, where we saw David make a brief stop in the city of Nob where the the tabernacle was. He's fleeing now away from the, the presence of Saul who was after him to kill him. He runs and, and he stops there briefly before the priest Ahimelech seeking help from him. And whereas Saul only sees in David a rival and, and a, a, a schemer, Ahimelech looks at him and sees that he is the anointed one of the Lord, set apart Unique, distinct, holy. It's the the core meaning of that word holy, set apart. And he sees in him one who can appropriately partake of the holy bread. And so he offers it to him. And he takes the holy bread and and is sustained by it. And he takes then Goliath's sword, use it to defend himself. But as we noted, there are messages in those two elements that were, were far more precious than just food for the stomach and a sword for the hand. There was a message. The bread says that you are my chosen one and I am your portion. And the sword says, you have me, a God who doesn't need swords. Remember, he took that off the body of Goliath whom God had already struck down. So David takes these, these two elements, these, these two items, only briefly stopping there and And moves on into our passage for today, verse 10 and following, where he actually now finally flees out of the presence of Saul. Previously, he's just been running around in the very near area around Gebeah. Now he's going to leave the land. Leave Israel. And flee, of, of all places, to the land of their enemies, the Philistines. As he leaves there and runs to there and then on and on and on, we'll see... God acting very subtly to protect him and then God acting to use him as a protector. There's a lot of text here. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 21 and all of chapter 22. And I'm going to pause in the middle to explain some of the details and then continue reading verse 6 on and then explain those details before making a couple of observations. So let me begin reading. I'm going to read 21 verse 10 through 22, verse 5, to start. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? Do you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. 
And there were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. David finally now flees away from the presence of Saul and runs out of the land, and he goes, amazingly, to Goliath's hometown. You can look at that and say, what, what is the plan there? Well, I think that the plan is that he's thinking, if I am an enemy of Saul, perhaps Saul's enemies will welcome me as a friend, take me in. It's not a crazy idea. It actually happens later. It, that, that is how it works out later. It just, it's too soon now. Now they still see him not as Saul's enemy, but as the king of the land, the one who slew his ten thousands, most of whom were us. That's still a little too fresh in their minds. And so they describe him as that to, to the king. The, his servants describe him as that, probably thinking, kind of like the Philistines worked, they had multiple kings in multiple cities. So they're probably thinking, Saul's a king and David's a king also. Multiple rulers, like, like we have. But there's a great bit of irony in their statement because he is the king of the land. Saul can't see it, but it's on the lips of their enemies. This is the one who's over Israel, the one of whom we should be afraid. And Achish realizes that, and David realizes that he realizes that, and it says he is greatly afraid. And when they arrest him, as it says he tried to be insane in their hands in verse 13. He's, he's in their clutches. They have arrested him in some way, and he realizes, I, I might die here. This has not worked out like I thought. And so he changes his behavior, and it says attempts to show himself as insane. And does a decent enough job at that, that the king sends him away. Probably because in that time, especially mental oddness was viewed with a certain bit of superstition so in some way he's going to be trouble for me if i let him hang around here in my house in my city so send away this one who is perhaps demonically possessed we don't know but we don't want any part of it get rid of him and so he does he departs chapter 22 verse 1 and escapes it says it's viewed as, as an escape out of the, the clutches of this, this fatal danger. And he leaves and goes to the cave in Adulam, 10 or 15 miles eastward, and then another 10 or 15 miles from there to Bethlehem. So he's moved kind of towards the east, inland a little bit. And when he gets there, his parents, his, his family is now also endangered because surely Saul will come after them. So they leave Bethlehem and they come to be with him in a cave along with gradually interesting people. Some people who, who probably are, are well-meaning and some people who are not well-meaning. Some people who are troubled and some who are troubled. And one reason or another, they've been chased out of the land and they gather to him there in this cave. And when we, when we think about caves, and caves are going to come up throughout the rest of this book, don't think only of like a, a little hole in the wall. Caves can be quite large, you know, the size of airplane hangars. I mean, they can be quite large, and they can also come in complexes. So it's not at all a stretch to think about hundreds of people hanging out in, in a cave or in caves in an area. So they're all gathered there for a little while until David realizes probably that my, my aging parents cannot live this life. So you need a place to take them. And he remembers, my dad is one quarter Moabite. Let's go to Moab. And so they travel down south, probably around the Dead Sea, into the land of Moab on the other side of the sea. And he gives them there to, to the king. 
and asking them to hold him as long as, they can, as, long as he needs them to be there until I figure out what God's going to do for me. He's doing something. I just don't know what. Leads there, then to go to a stronghold. And then finally, here's a word from the prophet named Gad to go back into Judah. Leave the safety of the stronghold and move back towards Saul. Why? David doesn't know. David never knows. But we can see something of the hand of God in this as we keep reading. Verse 6. David departed and went back into Judah. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? And Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Saul heard that this little army has marched back into the land to overthrow him, or so that's how he sees it. And that occasions him having this conversation with, with the people he thinks are his allies, but from his home tribe, he gathers them together to talk to them, to lecture them, and remind them who butters their bread. I'm from your tribe, you're from mine. How do you think you live? Do you think it will go so well for you to support one from Judah 
Why do you conspire against me? He's leveling these charges against those who are, in fact, his allies. They're from his own clan. And nobody says anything because nobody has anything to say. Except for Doeg. And suddenly we realize what was meant by chapter 21, verse 7. Stuck in the middle of David's interaction with the high priest, there is just a little foreshadowing there. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. That's all that's said about him until now, and he realizes, I can get in good with the king. I saw something, king. He tells him the story, slanting it a little bit, make it appear even more dangerous. He gave him provisions. It's a word kind of like military supplies. It doesn't talk about bread off the altar. He gave him provisions. And he gave him a weapon. And he inquired of the Lord for him. Which, when the priests who are all summoned innocently, they, they don't think they've done anything wrong. The high priest does not deny that at all. In fact, affirms it. And again, then, there's laced into his language a certain bit of irony because he says... Of course I did that. This is the best guy in all the land. Who in your house is more honored than him? He's your son-in-law. He's captain of your bodyguard. He is the man. Of course I inquired of the Lord for him, like I always do. Of course I gave him the holy bread, like he deserves. Of course I gave him the sword of Goliath. It's his, one off of the body of Goliath himself. Of course I did, O king. What's wrong with that? Supposed to make us think, Nothing is wrong with that. That is absolutely right. That's how a sane person would see this. And Saul says, I'm going to kill you. Because the king of Israel has no interest in righteousness and justice. Which is an alarming and tragic sentence. I mean, it's, it's obvious, so you don't, you're not surprised when he's saying it. But the king of Israel has no interest in righteousness and justice is a fundamental contradiction. Something that, that resonates in the hearts of his bodyguards when he tells them, kill the priests of the Lord. And they say, no. You want us to strike down The priests of the Lord in their innocence, that would be to strike at the Lord Himself. Are you out of your mind, O King? No. So he turns to the foreigner, Doeg, you do it, gladly. And another atrocity happens in Gebeah. which is not the main point of this chapter, but is a point from this chapter. Throughout the book of of Samuel here now, we are turning and we're seeing this conflict between Saul and David very clearly, but there becomes a conflict between Saul's line and David. We talked about this some time back, how the book of Judges even begins to set up this conflict between Benjamin of Gibeah and Bethlehem of Judah. The book of Judges closes with the atrocity against the priest in Gibeah. And those worthless men of Gibeah kill and dismember the priest's concubine. Oh, we should have gone to Bethlehem, he says. Here the priests are again abused in Gebeah. Eighty-five men slaughtered in their innocence. And then, on top of that, the city of the priests is put to the sword, everything that draws breath. Saul would not do that to Amalek. But he did it to the city of the priests. Killed them all. Every man, woman, and child, and every animal in their innocence. Except for one. There's a slight emphasis on this in the verse one of the sons of Ahimelech. One survived and fled to David and told him what had happened. It is an amazing atrocity and 
It is an amazing, unpredictable fulfillment of the Lord's judgment from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Just remember that. It's been a while. 1 Samuel chapter 2, when God pronounced through the prophet judgment on the house of Eli. Wicked Eli and Eli's wicked sons, he said to him in chapter 2, verse 31 and following, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your, sword, of your house shall die by the sword of men. Which just happened. By the wickedness of Saul and Doeg the Edomite. Strange thing happened. The wickedness of Saul who would dare to raise his hand against the innocent priests and against the Lord himself to strike them down. It is wickedness. And it is the fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. Decades before. And one priest survives, weeping his eyes out, Abiathar, who's a good priest, a true priest, and becomes one of David's greatest allies. He finds shelter and protection in David from Saul. Last sentence. David promises him security. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. That's the passage. It takes us all around the place. It's geographically quite diverse. There's a lot of text there. But I think it communicates one basic point that I'll put into a sentence. Here's what I'm going to work, work towards this morning in two observations. My main point, the Lord is faithful to protect His servants from final destruction. The Lord is faithful to protect His servants from final destruction. So let me elaborate on that with two points. Here's the first one. Kind of how these break down are what God did for David and what God did, did and does through David. Think of them like that. So here's the first point. God faithfully protects David as he leads him through the wilderness. God faithfully protects David as he leads him through the wilderness. This passage is the beginning of the real flight of David as he runs out of the land and leaves, leaves Israel and he's all alone among his enemies. End of chapter 21. And then in 22, he's, he's in a wilderness in a cave. He's fleeing into another foreign country. He's back to a stronghold. He's living in a forest. This is, this is the life of a fugitive now, and it will be that way for many chapters to come. He's on the run, living in unsafe places. No, no place to lay his head, sleeping with one eye open. You know, he is on the run. And we see particularly the, the threat, the danger, the fear of that in the first incident, the first scene in Gath where it says he was much afraid. And he realizes he made a mistake. Everything he's doing could go wrong one way or the other. Every, everything he's doing involves a decision that has life and death consequences for him. And here he is much afraid because he realizes he made, made a mistake. We read that, it all makes perfect sense to us. As does, you know, I can understand why he'd be afraid. As does his, his then reaction to that. I don't know that I would have thought of trying to act like I was insane, but it worked. Good enough. And then going to get away from some people and live in a cave makes sense. And then you've got to find somewhere to park your, your elderly parents. Well, okay. Among their relatives. That makes sense. Distant relatives though they are. And then back to a stronghold... It all makes sense. And we could read this and following chapters, it would be very easy to read all of this and just see a thoughtful man in some, under some pressure, in, in some desperate strait, making calculations, making some mistakes, recalculating, coming up with some good ideas, 
no God in it at all. It'd be very easy to read it that way. We very often read life that way. I faced a problem, I sat down and thought about it, I came up with a conclusion, I did this. And that didn't turn out so well, so I reacted to it by doing this. And that was better. And then this made a lot of sense, so I did that. No God in it at all. Very easy to read it that way. But part of the point of this is found in the little hints that pop up, that rise to the surface where we see, oh, there is very much God in this. Just as is most common in life, standing behind the scenes. We get little reminders here. The God who is ever hidden but ever present at the same time. The first little reminder is, is the frightening thing on the lips of the, the servants in, in Gath. Isn't he the king of the land? Isn't he the one through whom God slew the ten thousands? And David recognizes that, hears it, and yes. It's a little reminder. The reason he's here and the reason he has to flee is because God's hand is on him. Because God has put his hand on him, pulled him out, selected him, anointed him, and has been and continues to be at work in him. He is indeed the one who is the king. God's committed to him. First little hint that rises up. God's here. And then it comes up again in verse 3 as he's talking to the king in Moab. Let my father and my mother stay here till I know what God will do for me. David's conscious of someone at work. He is not saying, I'm just trying to make it here. I'm just free-floating through life on my own, on the run. He knows there's something, someone at work. I don't know what's going on yet, but I know who is at work. God. Which is why he's receptive in verse 5 when the prophet comes and speaks to him the word from the Lord He's receptive, and even though it doesn't make much sense, he obeys it. And he never knows, he never knows why. But we do another little hint to us. What causes the last section of this chapter, the last two-thirds of chapter 22, what causes that to happen? The prophet Gad saying to David, Go back into the land and take your 400 guys with you. That's what triggers now Saul heard that David was discovered with the men. At this day, he is at the gate coming towards me. That's what causes him to press this. God's at work here very subtly to do something. David never knows it. Then there's the last verse that David does know. With me you shall be in safe keeping. He's aware that God has His hand on him and is protecting him. Now, we look at that and there are just little, none of, not any of those points are great, big, large points. They are all very small little things, usually just half a verse or a sentence. Just a little thing here, and a little thing there, and a little thing there. But what they all together say to us is that this is not a man on the run through the wilderness by himself. Something's going on. Yes, he is out here thinking and planning and acting, as we always must. We, we always must. That, that's how God has made us. That's how God has made the world. We are to think, process, make decisions. Yes, while recognizing that behind it all always is a God who is doing something for you. With you. Even when you don't know what it is. Even when you can't see it. Even when you never learn what He's doing. David went on the word of the prophet, went into the forest, 
And as we keep reading next time, not, not next week, but two weeks from now, chapter 23, he then leaves and goes somewhere else and fights a battle to save a city. Never realizing what was the forest about. We realize because we read. God is in it. So first, what we, what we recognize first here in this passage is something about God. It, it comes around to us. We see God protected David and led him through the wilderness. That's really good news because it's going to apply to us here in a moment. That's the next point. But first we say, God. God is faithfully following him every place he goes. In fact, faithfully leading him to every place he goes, though he does not realize it, though we never realize it. God brought you here today. If you just woke up, God awakened you to hear the next sentence. Which i got to think what it's going to be. <laughs> Better be a good one, I guess. <laughs> Perhaps you think I'm belaboring this point, but I, I don't think I am. We have to grow. May God graciously grow us in the comprehension of the always present God. You wander through a wilderness lost and confused and seemingly, man, I messed that up. I should have done something different. In everything, He walks with you, leading you, doing something always. 90% of the time, you don't see Him. He pops up every now and then to show you, still here, still on the job. Before we go on to talk about what that means for us, we must first realize this about God, that He is a, an ever-vigilant, always faithful one. When He says to people, I'm committed to you, David. I have picked you up and put you over here. I'm going to make you the king. He really is going to make him the king. When he says to people like you and I, you're Christian, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He never leaves you nor forsakes you, even when you can't see him and even when you have no idea what he's doing for you. Because God is faithful to lead and protect Always. That's what He is. He's that kind of God. So we can say, along with the words of Psalm 34, the Lord encamps around those who fear Him to deliver them from all their troubles. Wherever you are, He's encamped around you, Christian. That's the kind of God He is. Always faithfully there. Popping up, sometimes in small hints, hard to see, hard to understand, but there. Which means something for us, which is the second observation. So, second point, if God is present, faithfully leading and guiding David through the wilderness, that connects to us in this way. God is present through David, and especially the great David, faithfully leading and guiding, protecting us as we walk through the wilderness, saving us from final destruction. The first one's about what God is faithful to do for David, and the second one is about what God is faithful to do through David. I almost 
broke my pattern and made three observations, but instead I'm going to make two parts of the second observation. <laughs> there, there are two parts to this. The first part is much more immediately personal, and the second part comes back around to us personally, but takes a step and, and gets kind of bigger first. But let's talk about the, the immediately personal part first. Verse 6, when it switches to, the scene switches to Saul, we see now what David's going to be used to do. Namely, he becomes the shelter of the one priest. Abiathar. Just like he became the shelter for the 400 malcontents who were weary and heavy laden and came to him, the shelter for his parents. Now, we don't know everything about those 400 guys. And in fact, the way they are described is, is a varied description. So I'm not trying to say they're all Christians in the New Testament sense of the word. They're all saved. They're all believers. But there's a pattern here of fleeing from Saul to David. family, the 400 guys, and, and most importantly, the final priest. He flees to David to find shelter and rest under his wings. And David says to him, do not be afraid. With me you shall be in safe keeping. The same thing God does for me, He'll do for you if you're with me. See the connection. He won't do it for you if you wander off over there. He'll do it for you if you're with me. Because he's doing it for me. It's important. Because that's what he does for us if and as we are included in David. Put that in quotes because David obviously himself is dead. I'm talking about the new and greater David. The one that all of this is pointing to. Everything in here is making us and helping us to think about a Savior come from Bethlehem. The Son of David. All of it is pointing us forward, not just to this one particular man, but to the one of which He is a model, a type. The Savior from Bethlehem, Jesus. We have to always be thinking about him and running to him in our minds because that's the message of the whole book all of the bible is in fact about a savior come from god jesus all of it so we have to think about that keep it in mind and and conceptually turn the page and see what does this say to me now today because god has saved the son of david because God has been faithfully with him to deliver him from all trouble, including and especially the trouble of the cross and the grave. Saving him, me in him, I also am saved. I, I know you who are Christians, you, you understand that you get that. This is not new. Perhaps some here though have not heard this, and I need to just clarify something. There is only one place to be sheltered in all of the creation. There's only one shelter. He has a name. The shelter is a person. And what we are sheltered from is, in fact, trouble in, in all of the earth, but particularly trouble come from God against those who raise up their hand against Him, which is all of us from birth. God sent His Son to be a Savior. That's Jesus. A shelter. How do we get under that shelter? Well, it's, a, it's not a physical tree or a physical umbrella. We get under that shelter only by simple trust. Faith. A conscious looking at Jesus, saying, I see that You are God come in flesh for one purpose, to die on the cross to shelter me from the outpoured wrath of God against my sin that I could do nothing about. That's what You have come to be, a covering, a shelter, 
I trust you and you alone to take care of my sin. You are included in Christ when you trust Him, His death on the cross, alone. But that does something marvelous for us day by day by day. It opens up to us, for instance, Psalm 56. Turn to Psalm 56. I could have picked Psalm 34. I picked Psalm 56. Both of these in their headings are attributed to the time that David was in in Gath. As we've talked about before, these headings mean one of two things. Either David, in fact, wrote it, or it was written about David in reference to that time. So it's connected, Psalm 56 says, to when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Because of all that I was just talking about, if you're a Christian, you can read Psalm 56, and I'm explaining something to you that you likely do automatically, but here's why you can do it. And this should open up to you something precious about God. You can read Psalm 56 and not only say, no, that was nice for David. How good of God to be faithful, to be with David, to protect him and lead him. But you can, in fact, also say, oh, and how good of God to be faithful, to be with me, to lead me and protect me just the same because you are in David only. That's what allows you to say Psalm 56 is for me. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God. The only way he can be gracious to you is if his wrath has been dealt with. And the only way his wrath is dealt with is if you are in Christ and it's been poured out and finished. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. They attack me. Verse 3, When I am afraid... I put my trust in You. In God whose Word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Well, lots. Flesh can do lots to you. Verse 5, they can injure my cause. They can stir up strife. Verse 6, lurking committing crime against me. Verse 7. Cause tears to flow from my eyes. Verse 8. Flesh can do lots, including kill. But he says that twice. Verse 4. What can flesh do to me? Verse 11. In God I trust. I should not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can man do to me? Kill you? Yeah, but what? I'm moving into my, my second larger observation here inadvertently. I realize that as I say that, I'm being a little flippant. What, what can man do to kill you? Ah, who cares? That's nice for you to say. You're on a stage in America, relatively safe. There are some people, perhaps in the congregation, perhaps in the congregation later today, who have seen that in a very different light. You understand? We we talk in, in theory about Christians being killed. We know people who have seen that with their own eyes. What can man do to you? Lots. He can kill. The psalmist gets that. He lives in the real world. David's imprisoned in Gath with people who are realizing, isn't that Goliath's sword? 
He's very aware this might not go well in the next couple minutes. What can man do to me? He's, he's got a, a bit of an ad. What can man do to me? I'm not going to fear the one who can just kill the body. I fear the one who can kill the body and the soul and then bless God for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from failing that I may walk before God in the light of life even when I die. Psalm 56 or Psalm 34 or any of the other Psalms are, are the Bible's promises and blessings themselves, wherever they are found, are yours only because you are in Christ. But what they say to you who are in Christ is that God is faithful to walk with you even when you can't see Him, even when you have no idea what He's doing, even when you, all you can say is, whatever He does for me, I have no idea But I know He's doing something. He is doing something. He's present with you. Always, never going anywhere. Faithful. And so you can, and I pray that you would, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. You get the point? I'm afraid, but I will not be afraid because I'm only looking at men. And they are not God. God is for me. I will trust Him. There is something deep and good. Christian. A faithful God walks through every inch of life with you and says in your fear, in the wilderness, in your uncertainty, I am there. And yes, they can cause tears to flow. And yes, they can take your life. But what can they do to you? Trust me. Praise me. It takes a miracle for that to happen. That ain't normal. It takes a miracle for that to happen. But in Christ, bless God, it can happen to you. It happened to David. And his God is your God. The promises God made to him are the promises God made to you. I will bring my kingdom and it will come. I will cause you to live in it and enjoy all of its blessings, I swear. And better even than David, you have a more sure promise. You have an empty tomb that declares something to you that David only heard about. It's happened. Psalm 56 is opened up to you and the blessings of it are opened up to you because God walks with you to lead you and guide you and protect you because you are in Christ. Very personal. But the second way we need to think about this draws back. It comes back around to be personal again, but it draws back and gets more complicated. So to Maybe wrestle with this a little bit. But back to the passage in Samuel. Saying that in David, God protects His people from final destruction. And I use that word final on purpose. Because as we read the chapter, we have to reckon with 85 dead priests in a wiped out city. And looking across history, we have to reckon with floating in the Nile, little dead Hebrew boys. And under Jezebel's sword, dead prophets. And in every 
time and age, from the Colosseum down to the Reformation and the burning stakes in the city squares, down to every, every dictator in the 20th century and on into the 21st century, we have to reckon with martyrdom. Death. What can man do to me? can kill everybody in my family and everybody I've ever known. The whole city. And I'm left here weeping my eyes out, grieving. Yeah. There is no promise, not in Psalm 56 or anywhere, that there will be no evil to befall us. In fact, the psalm talks about God capturing the tears and holding them in a bottle. There will be weeping. We follow a Savior who is crucified and hated by the world and told us the world will hate you too. That is a fact. But here's the point. Here's the point which is taught in... In, in the wicked bloodshed of 1 Samuel 22. And this is a point that is mysterious and hard, I think. Maybe harder for some than for others. But the point is that God has control over even such evil as this. And is providentially the doctrine of providence, God working out His purposes through secondary agents, is providentially using it to accomplish His larger purposes. Or to put it another way, Saul, in his anti-God rage, is serving God. He would hate to know that. But he is. Because there is only one God. Sovereign over all things. Forty or fifty years have passed since God pronounced his verdict on Eli. And Saul, ironically, in his unrighteous anger against God, is used by God to accomplish the righteous purpose of God. Now, I remind you, as we've talked about this before, when we look at the, the slaughter of the priests or of the city, we, we have to recognize that this is not to say that all of those people were all wicked. In fact, Abiathar, who was a victim himself in a way, was not. And they're all innocent, in fact, of the very charges laid against them. But we have to remember that simply to die, from the Bible's perspective... Simply to die is not the end, is not the final destruction. You need to keep that in mind because we look at this and say, that's, that's terrible, that's awful. Well, it could be that those, those were all people delivered into glory that day. We don't know. doesn't say anything about them. We need to keep that in mind. And we also need to keep in mind that while God is... At work through this, the responsibility, the, the guilt for it falls directly on Saul and on Doeg. The, the bodyguards themselves realize that we would sin if we raised our hands against these innocent holy priests. They recognize that would be sin. It would be sin. It would be wrong for them to do so. They are thinking. They understand it, as does Saul, as does Doeg, and they don't care. They do it anyway. Guilty. So the fact that God is at work in this does not excuse Saul or Doeg, nor does it put responsibility for the evil on God Himself, nor does it condemn every one of the victims. It's all disclaimers that we need to keep in mind. But at the same time, we must acknowledge that this is a mysterious working of God. Who would have thought, who would have planned None of us. 
But in fact, God is sovereignly, providentially controlling all of this. That's the difficult, sobering part. He remains sovereign. He accomplishes His purpose, pronounced a half a century before and now fulfilled. This is difficult to understand, I think. But here's where it should come back around to us. When we look at the nations raging against God or a king in all of his power or on a smaller scale because most of us don't deal with anything nearly so dramatic prejudice at work or a mean-spirited spouse parents who are controlling or kids who have gone off their rockers small stuff to whatever degree of, of great, atrocious wickedness down to nuisance, annoyance, and pain in the behind. Everything in between there, all of it exists under the sovereign control of God who has a plan, even though if all I can say is I know not what He is doing for me, I don't know. But it is under His hand and I know who He is. And I know what He has done for me. And I know that He has secured me finally, fully from destruction. Psalm 56 at the very end says, You have delivered my soul from death. David, not David nor anybody else ever believes he's never going to die. But you've delivered me from death. And I will walk before you in the light of life. What can man do to me? Kill me? Yep. And I'll live in light of life with you forever. I do not want to make light of the killing. I want to put it in the proper perspective. Like the psalmist does. God's control of even atrocities, seeing God's use of even atrocities, should put strength in you to understand that even in the evils and even in the pains and even in the hardships of your life, God is still up to something. What? We may never know. But He is at work. He is faithfully ever-present with you. Christian, He will not leave you nor forsake you. He has won you to Himself, has made you His own, Trust in the Lord. Trust in this God. Trust in the Lord and do not be afraid. In Christ, He has claimed for you all things, whether life or death. All of it is a servant to you. All of it is a servant to God's purposes for you. All of it under His sovereign good hand as He protects and leads you home. The wilderness wandering will end and you will come home into the kingdom. You will. He will deliver you, your soul from death. You will walk before Him in life. Trust Him and praise His Word. Trust Him and praise His Word. Remember, he repeats that. Trust Him and praise His Word and do not be afraid. The Lord is faithful 
protect the servants from final destruction. Let me pray. Lord, help us to sift the hard things. Help us to come to some understanding as we look at atrocity or tragedy or pain or suffering or difficulty or annoyance. Help us to look at those things and to trust You that You reign over them and are doing something in them for us, for Your kingdom, for Your people. Father, if there are some of Your people here today who deal with the suffering and the hardship right now, Pray, Spirit of God, reach down and assure them. Give them great strength to trust You. And as You say in Ephesians 3, strength to know how wide and long and high and deep is Your love for them. Strength to have Christ dwell down deep in their hearts by faith. Strength. And build up those of us who are not in the moment in the midst of looking at hard things in life, who are not in the, at the moment aware of, of wandering in the confused wilderness, afraid. Build up those ones, Lord, so that when the trial comes, and in this world there will be much trouble, when it comes, they'll have something to stand on, something to hide under. Do a work among your people, I pray. Thank you for being so faithful to walk with, to protect, and to guide. David long ago. Christ, our new David, and then us in him. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.